0: first edition of the 2024 Who's Who in Academic Emergency Medicine, a product of the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine. I'm collecting off a medical student and proud member of several SAM committees. Every other month throughout the year, we'll be hearing from a leader in academic EM from across the country, learning a bit more about their career and looking for any advice they may have for our own journeys. I'm excited to have with us here today, Dr. Elizabeth Schoenfeld. Dr. Schoenfeld is currently the Vice Chair of Research um, for the Department of Emergency Medicine at UMass Chan Bay State in Springfield, Massachusetts. She's an associate professor in both the Department of Emergency Medicine and the Department of Healthcare Delivery and Population Sciences. She received a career development award from AHRQ focused on shared decision-making around imaging choices for patients with suspected kidney stones. She's also received an r 3 and most recently an R34, both focused on shared decision-making the latter focusing on helping patients and clinicians talk about starting buprenorphine and methadone in the ED. She's been an active in SAM for over 10 years. Most recently, she was a co-chair of the 2021 consensus conference focused on social emergency medicine and population health. She works closely with the research committee and program committee to increase programming support. Supporting the goal of growing and supporting emergency medicine researchers at all stages of their careers. Outside of work, at least this past fall, uh, Dr. Schoenfield has been found dislocating her shoulder downhill mountain biking, coaching her kids' soccer team, and of course, rehabbing her shoulder. Dr. Schoenfield, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so
1: much for inviting me.
0: Always Um, happy to talk about research. Well, good. We may have to talk about that dislocated shoulder a bit too. That's fun. Obviously, you've had um, an incredible journey uh, in emergency medicine research. We'd love to learn a bit more about it. But To get started, what prompted you to get involved in emergency medicine research initially?
1: I always did a little bit of research during residency. So that would have been 2005 to 2009. We were doing a lot of ultrasound research because there was so much to do with an ultrasound research, and that was part of residency. And then I did an ultrasound fellowship because at the time research fellowships were not really widely advertised there weren't a lot of them out there within emergency medicine. So I liked research, but I didn't really even have the concept of a research fellowship. So I did an ultrasound fellowship with a little bit of research. And then I started my first academic job, hoping to do some research. And I did what I sort of refer to as elbow grease research, which is the sort of research that you get done with no budget and your own elbow grease retrospective chart reviews, you get a team, that sort of thing. And as I got more and more involved with research, I started to get more and more training and it became clear that there was a clear path to doing research and it involved more training, mentorship from successful researchers, and finding ways to get academic time or protected time to train yourself in research methods and also start to get your research done. So I didn't have a traditional path when I look at some of my colleagues, particularly some of the younger people who have more options in terms of research fellowships. So after I was in attending for several years doing sort of my elbow grease research, I decided I really wanted to take a a deeper dive uh, into research. And I went back and essentially did a fellowship. I did a master's of clinical research um, uh, as part of being an attending, which was essentially a fellowship. Um, And I sought out mentors um, in my department, but mostly outside of my department and also outside of emergency medicine, found mentors who had led people through the pathway of research fellowships, K awards, and that sort of thing. And then eventually I got the K award. I finished the master's, got the K award. And that was about five or six years ago.
0: Wonderful. So it sounds like when you were getting started, ultrasound was sort of the hot topic of the day. Do you feel like you were really driven by ultrasound or that was just sort of the opportunity that was before you? Yeah, that's a
1: great question. I think I really did like ultrasound and I liked that there was so much to be done. Each of the sort of questions with an ultrasound hadn't been answered. We published a bunch of papers on ultrasound guided IVs and nobody had published a paper on teaching techs how to do it. Somebody had taught nurses how to do it, we taught techs how to do it. And then we said, sort of a no brainer, let's ask patients how they feel about it. And then patients, of course, much prefer to have one stick under ultrasound guidance. So it was very focused on ultrasound and it really informed a lot of my future research But then it became, I started to have ideas about how I wanted clinical care to go in certain settings, which was influenced by my ultrasound training, but I was very committed to evidence-based medicine. So if you have an idea that you feel like is correct, but There's no evidence base for it. You can't teach the residents that idea until there's an evidence base. So you have to build the evidence base yourself. So you, if you look back over SAM for the, for the past decade, there's all sorts of conversations about, you know, ultrasound first for kidney stones and avoiding CT for kidney stones. And so my idea, you know, 10 years ago was this is a great place for shared decision-making and that sort of led me down a shared decision-making rabbit hole where now I'm sort of more of the shared decision-making for the Sake of shared decision making, not simply to decrease radiation burden and that sort of thing. And so, what started as ultrasound first for kidney stones led to shared decision making for everything. And then, now my current biggest projects are all about shared decision making around addiction treatment and care.
0: Very cool. Uh, I do want to come back to the concept of shared decision making here in a second, but you mentioned the fellowship and the role that played in your career. And I recognize The availability and the prominence of research fellowships has changed over the recent years. But do you feel like a fellowship was critical to your success? Is it something that you recommend to residents who are interested in making research part of their career?
1: I think if you want to be a researcher, and you can make research part of your career without sort of being a full-time researcher, I think you have to decide what percentage of your life five or 10 years after residency, do you want to spend doing research? If you want to work 80% clinically and 20% doing smaller research projects, I don't know that you need a research fellowship. But I also don't know that you're going to get a lot of uh, protected academic time to do that research. You may end up with either that sort of elbow grease research that I was talking about, or you may uh, end up on other people's uh, projects. But if you want to be a researcher in that you're spending more than 50% of your time on research, I think a research fellowship is essential. I think that you're building the skills that you need, you're building the networks, you're building the collaborations, you're getting the mentorship and your ability to get grants and become an independently funded research or is, is dependent on all those things that you're building during research fellowship. So I think that there's a few people who could probably do it without a research fellowship or a similar type two to three year experience with advanced training in research methodology and statistics. But you know some people who, who had PhDs before they came into med school may, might be able to pull it off if the training is analogous enough. But I do think that if you wanna make research a big part of your career after residency, a research fellowship is the way to go. I also think, And this is sort of a new uh, revelation that I, I had recently. If you have goals that are not specifically research, but that research would aid those goals, a research fellowship may make sense for you as well. And I'll give you the example. We had a speaker at our regional SAM meeting a few years ago who was going through a lot of the recent research on global emergency medicine, and one of the chairs asked the speaker what advice would you give to a junior faculty who's trying to get protected time to do global emergency medicine and the speaker said if you do these things that you are passionate about whether that's health equity global emergency medicine or another field and you do them through research you can get time and funding to do them. And I thought that was a really important message. If you have a passion and you can advance that passion via research, that may be the best way to advance that particular area within emergency medicine.
0: I love that. I think you and I were discussing before we pressed record here about the kind of passion that so many of our um, ER docs bring to the field and, and making sure that we've got a bit ways to incorporate that passion into our field long-term is, is incredibly meaningful. And um, The ability to have that protected time is so valuable, and research is a great way to do that. You talked about a couple of things that obviously get a lot of our ears burning. One of them is statistics. And, and I have to ask, uh, is statistics something that is truly essential to research for those of us who may find statistics a little, say, dry?
1: So good news. There's lots of different ways to be a researcher. I think that everybody needs to have a good grasp of statistics. I want you to exit your research fellowship having a concept of what propensity scores are for causal inference. I don't need you to be able to do them. I can't do them. The way that my research career has shaped up, I do a lot of intervention development and I don't do a lot of statistics. I have a few randomized control trials and I do a lot lot of qualitative work. And I definitely have statistics that need to be done and somebody else does the statistics. So, and, I, and this is very true for many successful researchers. There are people out there who are statisticians. Their job is to do the statistics. So your job is to bring the clinical question, to design the study, which involves understanding the statistics, and to talk to the statistician to make sure that you are on the same page, but you do not need to be the person that programs it in R or SAS. For your biostatistics classes, you are going to have to do that. And I, in fact, did that and did just fine of it during the several semesters that I did it. But if you don't use that skill, you lose it. And for me, that was six or seven years ago. And I rarely do my own statistics anymore. You have other people to help you. So if you are afraid of statistics, that is that should not deter you from a research career, but you do need to understand the concepts and, and the study design aspect that goes with the
0: statistics. Absolutely. I'm thrilled to hear that. I don't have to do too much statistics long-term. Let's we'll circle back a little bit to some of your work specifically. You talked about this shared decision-making. It looks like that's something that has been a common theme through several of your more recent um, grants. I guess, what does what shared decision-making in the ED look like to you and where would you like to see it going over the next few years?
1: Yeah, this is tough. I mean, I give a lot of lectures on shared decision-making to non-research audiences. And I love to tell people that I get funded to research shared decision-making because I think it's a great example about how you can get funded for lots of different things. You don't have to be doing the most salient thing in emergency medicine, the most life impacting thing. If there's something you're passionate about, there's a reason you are passionate about it, And your challenge is to explain to people why you are passionate about it and why it is important. Um, And for me, I see when I talk to patients and when I talk to colleagues, I see the benefits of involving patients in their own decision-making and have them clearly understand the risks and benefits and make their own decisions and being part of that. Uh, And so for me, it started as something to help prevent radiating tons of young people who are on their first of five kidney stones, right? So if you CT them on their first kidney stone, then they ask for a CT on their second kidney stone. And by the time they're 32, they've had five ki- five CT scans. So it sort of started, that's where it started, but really it's moved into everything else. Anytime you're admitting someone who is not going to truly benefit from the admission, which unfortunately we do all the time to cover ourselves. And because we're not sure what's going on, we forget the fact that there is risk to the admission and we need to talk to people about the risks of admission as much as the risks of going home. So just communication in general is something that I've been very passionate about. I also think that there's evidence that when we use shared decision-making, we improve our patient's trust in us, which as we've seen over the last five years, trust in the healthcare establishment and trust in healthcare providers has gone down, um, unfortunately for very good reasons. And for many populations, trust was very low to begin with. So shared decision-making is a way to build trust to reinforce autonomy, to say to a patient, I respect you as a human being, and therefore you get to be part of this decision. This is about your body. And so for me, it's been really a driving force in my research, but it's not an easy thing to study. There's no big databases or there's very few big databases that include any metrics that are relevant to shared decision-making.
0: This is fantastic. You talked a bit about how some of those decisions, some of those trends, some of those things we've learned are obviously not unique to emergency medicine. Uh, they, they don't fall well within sort of the, the four fixed walls of the ED. Uh, and you've also got an appointment outside of the Department of Emergency Medicine. Obviously, collaboration is key to what we do in this field. Uh, any advice for building those kinds of collaborations outside of our departments?
1: Yeah, that's super important. So emergency medicine is still a young field and many academic departments, there are academic emergency departments that have a dozen uh, federally funded researchers, but they're pretty few and far between. Most residencies in this country, most EM residencies do not have a researcher with federal funding. And so if you want to become an independently funded researcher, federally funded researcher, that means you're doing, you're researching your own ideas, you're the principal investigator, it's investigator driven research, you need to be able to get those grants, and it is you're very unlikely to just strike out on your own and get them, you really need mentorship of people who have done it before. Um, and so my primary mentor for almost 10 years now is a hospitalist. He's internal medicine. He does big data. So he understands all the statistical stuff that I'm not going to spend too much time with. And so he does a lot of pulmonary stuff. So he's very much outside of my field, but he knows the pathway. He knows the research issues. He knows the career issues. He knows whether I'm selling my idea or I'm not selling my idea. He understands grant writing. He understands writing papers. So if you're in a shop that does not have emergency medicine federally funded research you absolutely need to look for collaborators outside of your department. The department that I'm in, Department of Healthcare Delivery and Population Science, is an interdisciplinary, very small department that's essentially made up of the researchers' from the other departments. So we have a pediatrician, we have a cardiologist, we have a pulmonary critical care person that was just hired, we have an addiction medicine person. And clinically, we may be all spread out, but in terms of research, we're all dealing with the same things. Everybody is either working on a K, or got their K within the last five or six years. A few people have made the transition to their R's and then we have a mentor who's had R's for a decade. So we have the support of a team who has been through it and we can ask each other questions and bounce things off of each other and have that, that network. And I think that that is incredibly important. Now you can have a group like this outside of your department or outside of your hospital and institution as well. And I think SAM has been really critical for helping me build those people outside of my department, but within emergency medicine. So I think that's another source for that sort of support. But I do get really day-to-day, week-to-week support from these researchers within my institution who are both within and outside of emergency medicine. That's a little bit harder for SAM to to provide, but I know SAM has really worked towards this and has a lot of great options to, to help build that support team.
0: Absolutely. It's hard to talk about research without feeling a bit like we're an alphabet soup here with the K's and the R's and all sorts of other things like that. It feels like a whole world onto itself. And, and of all of the folks that we talked to for these interviews, I, I swear mentorship is, I feel like it should be the title of the series at this point, talking about how to find and engage mentors. And you mentioned that SCM does have some phenomenal resources about that, things like K and R-related workshops at the annual meeting and, and several webinars as well as some segments of our research learning series, which we certainly encourage folks to check out as well. You talked about breaking into that world. So you talked about the role that your fellowship played into getting your first set of, of Alphabet Soup related grants there. For someone who maybe didn't go down that path, they maybe we're a few years into our career, we didn't do a research fellowship, is it still feasible to break into that Alphabet Soup world?
1: I think so. I mean, so like I said, I didn't go the traditional pathway. I was in attending for a couple of years before I started the master's and started getting those first grants. So I don't think that you can be necessarily too late. I think you just have to find the mentorship and figure out what it is that needs to be done, which unfortunately, you know, if you're 20 years in and you've worked clinically for 20 years, you may end up having to go back and do a fellowship, which is going to be a pay cut. So you have to decide what you're willing to do to start on that path. But certainly there are people who start Started as um, investigators, you know, ten years into their clinical career, because they decide that that's one, that what they want to do, and that's very reasonable. I want to add that there's the other ways to find mentorship within SAM is to simply keep your eyes out for the things that are happening that interest you. One of my very first mentors was, I think it was 2015 or 2016, the Consensus Conference. One year, it was talking about appropriate diagnostic imaging. And I was like, oh, that's that's important to my line of research. This was, I think, before I had any grants. And then as I started to get involved in that, I learned that the next year, the entire conference was going to be on shared decision-making, which was sort of my new area of interest. And so just by talking to people at SAM, someone said, oh, by the way, did you know this? Oh, by the way, have you talked to Eric Hess? It's like, oh, I haven't talked to Eric Hess. So Eric Hass and Karita Grudzen were two of the, the co-leads of that consensus conference. And so you just stick your neck out and you go talk to them. And you're this brand new junior faculty who has barely published anything. And maybe I think was, I don't know. I don't even know if I'd started my master's at that point. So really I had nothing to show for myself, but I was really interested. And Eric was super helpful. And he was the person who had published essentially all, almost all of the shared decision-making within emergency medicine at that time. And he was perfect perfectly happy to, you know, meet with me by phone or meet with me at meetings and give me advice as I sort of set up on this pathway. And it's so if you find those people within SAM, particularly if it's such a niche topic that it's not like they've got people all day long who are going up to them saying that they want to be a shared decision making researcher, you often can get a response, particularly if you're the type of person who's ready to put the work in. If you look at the people that I've met via SAM, we now have a lot of papers together, which means. They've helped me with my papers and they are authors and I've helped them with their papers and I'm an author. So you do really tangibly benefit from these collaborations on top of the skills you get. You do increase the number of papers that you're writing because you're working with other people Um, and that increases your options and your opportunities.
0: Fantastic. So I'm adding to my list of key themes here, mentorship, collaboration, and passion. We've got a good sort of trifecta there. You mentioned this idea of you can find funding for a lot of different things if you're passionate enough and really search it out. I hope that proves to be true. But obviously that passion can be challenged at times. Finding funding can be hard. Building collaborations can be hard. Sometimes these projects take years to to build. How do you sustain that passion over the course of what has been a, a really great career?
1: Yeah. So perseverance, you were listing the things that were important. And I think that The key to success in research is not really any intrinsic personality, trait, or skill, it is literally just perseverance. When you look at who gets Ks and who doesn't get Ks, so for the alphabet soup, the K is the career training award, which is often five years long and protects you at 75% of your time to develop you as a researcher and to work on a grant and really sets you up to, to get the the bigger grants. And I can explain why this is not a, a bigger grant, even though it sounds like it's a very big grant. The, the predictor of whether you get a K award is how many times you try. So, you know, if you expect that you're gonna get it on your first try, you're gonna be frustrated. If you've seen your colleagues not get it on their first try, and you know that it's going to take a submission and a resubmission, I think that that's helpful and recognizing that it's the same with manuscripts. I don't know why anyone would go into a manuscript thinking it's going to be accepted on the first try. It's not. That's just how it works. And if it was accepted on the first try, then you didn't aim high enough with your manuscript. You should have sent it to JAMA if it was accepted by something else on this first try. So you have to have perseverance if you want to. That's really the only key to success is to sort of just keep going. One of my colleagues who's no longer at Bay State, she said, submitted a K, it was rejected. She submitted another K, it was rejected. She changed topics and submitted a K and it was rejected. And she re that K and it was accepted. So it was her fourth attempt at a second different K. And so I will say in terms of your passions, There are things that are not necessarily going to get funded, and you need to find ways to get yourself funded. So then you can work on both of those things, both the things that got funded and the things you're passionate about. And she's a fabulous example. So during her time on her K, which was, uh, I believe, about sepsis or heart failure or something very fundable, she did work on disability access to medical care. And she did a couple of small, highly influential studies. I remember hearing her on NPR one morning as I drove to work, which I think is maybe the the pinnacle of success. And then of course, as she got out and she was writing grants, she then was writing RO1s based on this work that she had done unfunded during her K that are now super important and super relevant in this area that she was passionate about, but she couldn't get funded initially. So I think that if you have some an area that's not gonna get funded and, people, and your mentor will tell you whether that's gonna get funded or not gonna get funded. So I was talking about things that will and will not get funded. I have not seen a lot of people get funded for education research. So if you wanna be an education researcher, you have to think about how that's gonna get funded. One way to think about it is, are you an education researcher or are you a DI, and i dissemination and implementation? If your goal is to change how we practice medicine, maybe you're a dissemination and implementation researcher and education is part of that. But if you're a residency program director or an assistant program director, or that's who you would aspire to be, that type of research is very hard to get funded. And that's what your mentors are for, to tell you what can get funded and what can't get funded.
0: Even if you didn't listen to Dr. Schoenfeld's bio here, you've probably caught on by now that in addition to her own research career, she's a leader in this space. She's a mentor for a lot of us who are coming up through the ranks, and she's also a vice chair of research within her own department. So let's shift to that focus here a little bit from a sort of a vice chair's perspective. What makes for a successful research program? What makes for a successful relationship between an individual researcher and their institution?
1: These are good questions, and I don't know that I have the monopoly on on answers. We are actually a very young research program at our institution. So I think that by a few metrics, we're very successful. We've had three K awardees and a few R21s and R34 and R03s. But if you compare us to other places, who have multiple R01s, we are very different. And I think sometimes the bigger places are a little bit more siloed, so they work differently than we do. For us, our biggest challenge has been bringing people who want to do research to our institution just because we are out way out in Western Mass, Springfield, Massachusetts. It's a great place to live and a great place to work clinically. We have, I think, the busiest emergency department in the Northeast at 120,000 visits per year but we have not traditionally attracted the people who are interested in going into research. So when I was a med student, I didn't apply out here and I didn't know it that well. And so, you know, we're trying to increase our own visibility in in the research world. It's super important to support the junior researchers. So I think to, to create a research fellowship and to really make sure that the people going through your research fellowship have access to the the classes but not just the classes but the people that they're going through the classes with and the peer mentorship so other people other physicians who are doing research at the same sort of place in their careers are super helpful to talk to and to bounce things off of and then People, obviously, who are ahead of them in their career, who are at their institution, whether or not they're in their department, to help them push their ideas through the institution and understand how well, how does our IRB work, how does um, reimbursement work if you want to pay your patients for something, all those little nitpicky logistics, having the support to do that. And then the other side of that is protected time or academic time, I think is a better term for it it's very hard to expect somebody to come into a research career without enough protected time to develop to get grants so our office of research created a grant development grant that was uh, 20 percent protection for six months essentially to help you write your k to give you that protected time to write that k or if you are working on that r but to give you time to get the work done to even get the grant so you need the recognition from the departments that they have to invest up front in order to build the researchers and i think the departments that understand that and are able to do it really can build amazing research programs. But the problem is in the current environment of medicine, most residencies do not have the money to give someone 50% protected time or 75% protected time for three years to get those grants in and get to the next level. So I think that is that is the big challenge.
0: Absolutely. Uh, you talked a bit about um, that idea of, of KERRI or that alphabet soup funding being one metric of success. Either as an individual researcher or as an academic leader, what do you consider other metrics of success for folks who have successful research careers? Is it publications? Is it protected time? Is it the, long, the length of time that they've had funding? What kind of other metrics do we have?
1: these are all great questions and i will say individually everybody can define their metric of success for themselves because if you decide to to drop out of whatever you're doing to spend more time with your family that is going to feel like a success as well so you have to decide what's right for you for on a cynical level from the thirty thousand foot put view until you get an r-level grant you are not bringing money into your institution, you are costing your institution money. So, the K awards, although they say you're supposed to have 75% protected time, do not actually cover 75% of your salary. So, your institution is still buying you protected time during the five years on the K, which may or may not be possible for the institution to do. So, in that respect, You are successful in that it looks good that you have achieved a K award and you have five years to be a very helpful and productive member of your department, help other people get their research done, present abstracts at SAM, get the name of your department out there, you are not actually helping keep the lights on. So you are only successful in that particular metric when you move on to the the bigger grants. And within the R's, there are smaller ones, which are R03s and R21s, which are not likely to give you enough time to get a lot of things done. These are much smaller grants. And then there are R01s, which are much bigger, which are sort of the I think the the final metric of success is R01s and UG3s and these much bigger grants. But they, again, they come with their challenges. You're managing a lot of people when you have an R01 and certainly a lot more when you have some of these bigger multi-center grants. And you quickly realize that you need to delegate a lot of things to a lot of people, which is very challenging. So certainly bringing in money to your institution is something that they are eventually going to care about. In the beginning, they're gonna care about your papers. So what metrics are important? depend on where you are in your career. If you are a medical student and you want to do research, finding things that you're passionate about and trying lots of things looks great. As a junior, and then you get your name either as middle author or if there's something you're really passionate about and you led the project, even if it's tiny, then you get to be first author on that. And that looks amazing. If you can come out of residency with a few first author publications of things that you've been really interested in, that looks very good. And then you get a few more during your research fellowship or during your other fellowship, when you're ready to hit the, go- hit the ground running. As junior faculty, it's the same thing. You want to get research done. You want your name as a first author or a middle author, a nice combination of those. So the first author shows that you really pulled it across the finish line. But the middle author shows that you collaborated with other people. So if you have a ton of first authors and not a lot of middle authors, then you're just working totally by yourself. And if you have all middle authors and no first authors, then it's like, well, have you just sort of mooched and gotten into projects and not necessarily pulled them across the finish line yourself? So when you're early, those first author publications really show that you did it yourself. And that's going to be what's really important as an early faculty, because that's how you show that you when you apply for those grants that you are truly a researcher, you're basically saying, look, I finished this project right nobody wants to fund you if you haven't finished the previous projects that you've started so you say look i i took on this small project it was all my idea i took it across the finish line and i have this paper to show for it so i think early in your career those are those are the important metrics and then as you do that you start to get the grants and each little grant shows that somebody thinks that you can do it. And so then when your CV has a couple of grants on it, then the next grant says, look, these people said this person can do it. And look, these three grants all turned into one or two papers. And so you're building like little grants, little papers, little grants, little papers, and they sort of get bigger and bigger.
0: I love it. Built that sort of snowball effect there. I know we're just about out of time, but I do want to end on what is probably my favorite question to ask in interviews like this. And that really is sort of the big kind of passions that we see driving uh, emergency medicine. Over the next five, 10 years, what are some of the topics that you'd love to see emergency medicine make progress on either operationally or in the research realm? Oof, ouch. Well,
1: so unfortunately, I think, and maybe I'm just speaking from local experience, but I think this is everyone. Unfortunately, I think the emergency department is currently the canary in the coal mine of the U.S. healthcare system. And I don't know about your hospital, but our canary appears to be dead. So I would really appreciate if the U.S. political system could recognize that the healthcare system, as it has evolved, since nobody actually designed it this way, it has just evolved to be here based on all the tensions political tensions is unsustainable as it stands and does not take care of our most vulnerable patients and people in our society. And so I think that the research that pushes forward changes to to our healthcare system are going to be the, the most important. And that can come from a lot of different angles. If I knew the answer, that would be wonderful, but I can't say that I do. So I think that making our jobs sustainable by improving the social safety net would would go a long way, and also just increasing access to healthcare and improving flow through healthcare. I think we've seen that our population is aging. There's a lot of stressors and people need more medical care, not less, unfortunately, and we need to set our system up in a way to be able to, to provide that and I don't have a research answer for that. But I think that individually, we talk a lot about burnout and wellness. And I do think that if you have a research passion, and particularly if you have a protected academic time to follow that passion, I do think it's protective against burnout. Because you may have a couple of horrible shifts, but then you come home and you get to, you know, I work with a community organization of people who use drugs, and I love them, and they're wonderful. And I get to sit down and have focus groups with them. And it's in some ways much more fulfilling than being frustrated at work. So I get to balance my life with these two different things. And then when I've been home writing grants and papers for a week, I'm happy to go back to work because I'm sick of being home and writing uh, papers and grants. So I think that they balance themselves out. So I do think that as helpful individually to avoid burnout but I wish we could find some way to to work on it collectively and end up with a a functional national healthcare system.
0: I'm glad to see we're setting small, easy to achieve goals here and oh, yeah, absolutely. comprehensive national health system. So uh, anyone who's uh, listening, and if you feel like you've got the strategy, that by all means, let us know. We'd love to collaborate with you on that. And we'd, if you've got a good answer, we will absolutely make you the next installment on the Who's Who in Academic Emergency Medicine. But for the rest of us, let's keep thinking about it. Let's keep working on it. We've obviously got some big shoes to fill. Thank you so much, Dr. Schoenfeld, uh, for joining us and sharing some of what has been an incredible journey on your end and, and the advice that we may try to pick up on. If you've listened, we've got a couple key themes that I want to hit on before we leave, and one is those mentors, um, the need to collaborate, the passion that is inherent in the field, uh, as well as the need to really maintain that perseverance long-term, as well as opportunities within SAM to build those kinds of collaborations, to find the kind of information experience you need to make that career successful. We certainly encourage you to check out SAM's interest groups, consider joining an SAM committee, um, and hopefully see you at the annual meeting and perhaps the consensus conference as well. Thank you again to Dr. Schoenfeld and to SAM for having us.
1: Thank you so much for doing this, really appreciate it.